out of all of the actors, while many are dangerous, Hezbollah could really trigger a region-wide cascade effect. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The conflict in Israel and Gaza is escalating, but it has so far not spread in any major way across the region. But so long as the conflict persists, it could just be a matter of time until other fronts of this war open up. My guest today, Dalia Dasa Kay, has a recent piece in Foreign Affairs that explains how the Gaza War might ignite the entire Middle East. Dalia Dasa Kay is a senior fellow at the UCLA Berkel Center for International Relations and a Fulbright Schumann visiting scholar at the Center for Advanced Middle East Studies at Lund University. We spoke on Tuesday, October 31st, about what might keep this conflict from spreading to other fronts in the region, and if it does spread, what that wider war in the Middle East might look like. We kick off discussing Hezbollah. This powerful Iranian proxy militia in southern Lebanon has been engaged in thus far limited skirmishes with Israel since October 7th, but that may change. We then discuss why restraint is the most logical course for Israel and Iran, and why despite compelling reasons not to expand this conflict, a wider regional war is very much in the realm of possibility. This conversation does a really good job of explaining some key regional dynamics that will inform decisions in the coming days and weeks and months ahead and will give you the context you need for understanding this conflict should it spread beyond Israel and Gaza. So just one quick note before we start, I have been publishing some bonus episodes and extra content on the globaldispatches.org newsletter about the diplomatic dynamics of this conflict at the United Nations. This is one of my core areas of expertise, and I've been publishing some news and analysis, both as premium bonus episodes and as newsletter editions for paying subscribers. Please visit globaldispatches.org or go to patreon.com slash global dispatches, or finally just upgrade your subscription directly in Apple podcasts. You will be getting some bonus content and you will also be supporting this show. 
I so appreciate it. Now here is my conversation with Dahlia Dasa K. So to kick off, it seems to me that a shoe that has not yet dropped is Hezbollah joining the fight in a meaningful way. But given the volatility of the situation, that could happen in any moment. So I wanted to have a conversation with you today about the circumstances in which this conflict may or may not escalate regionally, potentially to include Iran. But before we get there, can I have you provide some context for listeners about the history of Hezbollah and its relationship to the Lebanese state and to Iran? You know, Hezbollah is a Shia non-state militia group. It's one of the largest political parties, as well as a military faction within Lebanon. It is one of the main power brokers within the Lebanese state. It has the closest alignment of all of the so-called Iranian proxy forces in the region. It has the closest relationship to Iran of all of them. It is a, a Shia group. And thus, you know, has an ideological connection to Iran, but is also the most well-armed and well-trained militia group in the region. I think it is right to start with this question of Hezbollah, because out of all of the actors, while many are dangerous, Hezbollah could really trigger a region-wide cascade effect. And if it did enter the war it would be a much more devastating event than even we're seeing in the already horrific situation in Gaza. Its capabilities are far more advanced and far more lethal. It has uh, a very advanced missile capabilities that can penetrate and reach all of Israel at this point. So the last time there was a major flare-up, a major conflict between Hezbollah and Israel was in 2006. I just started covering the United Nations mm-hmm. as a, a journalist and, you know, like international diplomacy kind of snapped into action to try to contain this conflict at the time from escalating even further. And the result was an expanded UN peacekeeping force in southern Lebanon patrolling or maintaining a tenuous ceasefire along what's known as the blue line. Yes, that would be the UNIFIL arrangement, which is absolutely right. 2006 was the last direct war between Israel and Hezbollah, full-scale war, devastating war, really catastrophic throughout the country of Lebanon, a momentous war in the region. And you're right, you did have at the end of that the deployment of UNIFIL UN forces to kind of control escalation and miscalculation. And and it has worked. It's not perfect, but it has worked fairly well in avoiding a repeat of a full-scale war between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, you have a lot of activity more recently uh, with Hezbollah in Syria. The Iranians, along with Hezbollah, intervened in the Syrian civil war after 2011. They came in later with the Russians and pretty much saved the Bashar al-Assad regime with Iranian air power. And so Hezbollah forces have been very active in the Syrian theater as of late, and Israelis have been hitting Syria quite hard over the past years. But, you know, partly because of this buffer force in southern Lebanon, you have not had a, a direct Israel Hezbollah war, but also neither side is particularly interested in a full-scale war. And what you have that's developed is kind of a rules of the game. And so there is an understanding, informal understanding 
of kind of the limits and how far you can go in punitive action on the other side without crossing a line that would trigger a major retaliation. So I think that's kind of the state of play up until now. Not perfect, but certainly better than a full-scale war. So, you know, it seems to me that as you describe both sides, Israel and Hezbollah have kind of operated in a constrained way. What I would kind of characterize as like a tit for tat rocket attacks responded by with other rocket attacks. It has not escalated in any major way. And in your recent foreign affairs piece, you articulate many reasons why escalation is sort of illogical for both sides of this conflict right now and how restraint really makes a lot more sense. Can you just kind of go through that reasoning? Yeah, well, I mean, when you start with the Israeli side, you know, the focus right now is clearly on Gaza. They are now entering the so-called second phase of the war with the ground component. So there doesn't look to be a big appetite for a second front. There was some debate reported within the Israeli system The defense minister reportedly was interested in confronting Hezbollah to kind of preempt, but that looks to have been overruled. And it does look like, you know, they're fully focused on the Gaza campaign. So there does seem to be an interest on the Israeli side in keeping that front calm. And from Hezbollah's side, you know, there is, I think, a very clear understanding that, you know, a front with Israel but catastrophic wars, we discussed how catastrophic 2006 was for the country, you know, there's not going to be a lot of support within Lebanon, it will not be a popular move by Hezbollah to get it into a war with Israel, that will devastate the country, like what everyone is seeing in the horrific images coming out of Gaza. So given Lebanon is already in an extreme political and economic crisis, There's questions of whether Lebanon could even survive a war when it comes to fuel capacity. You know, they barely have electricity on for, you know, more than several hours a day. There's regular blackouts. So all of these kind of domestic constraints. And, you know, as we discussed, Hezbollah is a political player within the Lebanese system. So I think that does bode for some reasons for restraint. But as you said, With and as this Gaza escalation continues and as the death toll rises, there is increasing pressure to, you know, show solidarity and to show support for the so-called resistance camp and Hamas's campaign against Israel. So we are seeing more rocket attacks, anti-tank missiles being lobbed across the border. Israel is responding. And what's worrying is that increasingly they're moving beyond a kind of, you know, three to four kilometer range in the border area, and they're going into deeper territory, such to the extent that, you know, Israel has evacuated major towns in its upper northern region, where, you know, tens of thousands of residents live. Lebanese in southern Lebanon have been fleeing that region out of fear of an escalation. And so, you know, you've had dozens of Hezbollah fighters actually killed so far in these tit for tat strikes. So, you know, while they're relatively measured and controlled and calibrated, this is the kind of situation that could easily spin out of control if a target is hit that leads to massive civilian casualties or if one side decides to intentionally escalate and cross red lines. From Iran's perspective, what's the incentive structure look like there to not escalate on the one hand or to escalate on the other hand? 
Well, I think here is where the United States factors in, you know, in a very major way. The Iranians do not seem interested in entering a war with the United States. And given the Biden administration's response from the very outset of the horrific attack on Israel on October 7th, the Biden administration has, you know, made it a priority to show full backing for Israel to the detriment of its broader image in the region and globally, but it is very clear. And to make it clear, the Biden administration also moved military assets into the region very quickly to aircraft carrier, marine contingent, and very public messaging, uh, not subtle at all, that, you know, no actor, and it was very clear, they mean Iran, and of course, Hezbollah should take advantage of the situation and think about entering the war, because that would provoke an American response. And so I think from the Iranian side, in terms of the logical, you know, kind of calculations, the Iranians, they want to show solidarity with Hamas, of course, but they're going to be very careful not to provoke a war directly with Washington. And most critically for Iranian leadership interested in their survival, they really look at Hezbollah as a very critical deterrent for their own protection, given Hezbollah's capabilities. And I think there's a lot of questions about whether the Iranians would want to jeopardize degrading that kind of capacity by Hezbollah getting into a conflict with Israel and possibly the United States and not having that ultimate insurance policy should Iran directly be attacked intentionally. So I think, you know, those are some of the constraining factors. But again, as I think my, you know, I try to really illustrate in my piece, you know, we can all sit, you know, in Washington or in Europe or wherever we are in our comfortable rooms, rationalizing and and breaking down these logical arguments about why there should be restraint on all sides. But unfortunately, when events on the ground create new realities that can be unpredictable, unforeseen, when you have anger rising, and decisions made in a very emotional and polarized context with a lot of uncertainty and unpredictability, it's not always as easy to control these kinds of actions as we might like. And so I I think this is why I really spell out why there is a risk of miscalculation and possibly even changing strategic calculus, because this was such a momentous, game-changing event in the region. So while, as you know, logic and rationality would point to restraint, we are in such a volatile moment right now that anything can happen very quickly. So what are some of the scenarios that might lead to regional escalation and what might that escalation look like? That's always hard to say, but I think, you know, as a rule of thumb, the longer the conflict in Gaza goes on and the higher the death toll gets and the worse the images get coming out from this ground war, the more pressure there will be on some of the Iranian aligned groups. And here we also have the danger that they could start competing against each other for kind of trying to showcase who is, you know, kind of touting the Palestinian line better than the other. And so that's where you could start having decisions. And here Hezbollah would be the most critical actor to look at. But, you know, we're also seeing Iranian aligned groups in Iraq and Syria attacking U.S. forces. This isn't hypothetical. It's already happening. There's been one every day since I wrote this foreign affairs piece. There's actually been attacks on U.S. forces every day, at least 20. So far, no major casualties. But if one of those attacks leads to a major death toll of American forces, that's going to force a different calculus in Washington about 
how tolerable this situation is. And if Hezbollah launches an attack, again, that, you know, the other day they hit Kiryat Shmona, it's a major city in northern Israel that was largely evacuated. But if it goes further and hits Haifa, and there's a mass civilian casualty, if it hits, you know, I think schools are not in session in Israel at the moment, but, you know, a large number of children, civilians, this Israeli calculations about not being able to afford a second front could very, very quickly change. And then on top of all of that, you have another scenario, which is, you know, the Israelis, and this was already reportedly debated in the Israeli cabinet, but you have pressure within Israel. This was such a traumatic event for the country, for the leadership, such a catastrophic failure. There will be voices calling for really changing the status quo in an irreversible way, which means they may not no longer, and that of course is already the Israeli goal, as murky as that may be on Gaza, but there is the question about whether they'll want to really change the status quo when it comes to Iran and Iranian-aligned groups in the region. And so here you have the question of whether the Israelis will feel that this is the moment that they need to preempt and degrade Hezbollah capabilities and Iranian capabilities, especially because they may be concerned the Iranians see this as a very opportunistic window when Israel is bogged down, when it has global opinion against it, when it already has shown operational and intelligence failures, when it has the entire Arab region on its side, which is unusual because many Arab states, not all, are as unhappy as Israel in some respects about Iran's activity in the region. So the Israelis could be worried the Iranians are going to capitalize on this and they're playing with fire. And so there may be voices in Israel calling for a more preemptive and intentional strike against Hezbollah, either in Syria, in Lebanon, and possibly even attacks within Iran itself that is in the realm of possibility. And, you know, it seems like anything like that could happen at a a moment's notice with some miscalculation, or as you noted, the whole dynamic of the conflict could change in a real meaningful way if there are significant American casualties, because as you've noted, there has been a constant barrage of attacks on U.S. forces in Syria and in Iraq. I think there's like 900 U.S. forces in Syria, I think maybe around 1,200 in Iraq. Yeah, 2,500. Okay, 2,500. And they've been sustaining casualties. Like yeah. there was an incident in, in which one person died of a heart attack and 20 other people were injured yeah. in an attack. And the United States responded by destroying what they described as like a, an Iranian arms depot. Mm-hmm. But this could spiral like very, very quickly. Yeah. I mean, even before Gaza, this was happening. Interestingly, there was about a six-month pause in these kind of attacks before the onset of the Gaza war. The U.S. and the Iranians were in indirect negotiations in this so-called de-escalation round of discussions. There was a major prisoner release between the Americans and the Iranians, some unstated agreement about at least not expanding the Iranian nuclear program, although the nuclear issue was not a big focus. It largely accepted where the Iranians were, just it didn't really lead to any rollback, but at least contained the situation, supposedly. And then we did see a pause in these kind of a militia attacks against the American forces deployed in Iraq and Syria. They're a small number, but they're vulnerable, especially in Syria. And as you said, they have led to some casualties 
low levels, mostly, you know, traumatic brain injuries, which are still very worrisome and serious. But again, always a concern that this could easily spiral. And the U.S. did respond. I know there's a lot of critique against the Biden administration that it's been weak. It hasn't restored deterrence, whatever that means these days. But, you know, the U.S. and the Biden administration, its first military attack when Biden came into office was in the Middle East in this theater. So this is not a new phenomenon that the U.S. is dealing. I know there's a lot of talk about the U.S. left the region, but in fact, it still has tens of thousands of forces in the region, not just these small numbers in Iraq and Syria. It has large bases in other Gulf countries. And so there's lots of worry that it could expand to other targets, of course, maritime assets. So none of this is hypothetical and it was all happening. Now, this pause seems to be broken, but my understanding is there still are back channel communications with the Iranians through some of our Gulf partners. And hopefully those are being used to try to contain this cycle of escalation. But, you know, that remains to be seen. And I think these developments over the past couple of weeks are extremely worrying. So what sort of trends or inflection points are you looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not pressure might build for escalation in which that kind of logic of restraint is broken? What might lead to that in the coming you know, days or weeks? <sighs> Well, I think you started with Hezbollah. I think that's a key one. Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, is supposed to be making a speech this Friday. And I think that will be a a good indicator or at least give some sense of maybe at least rhetorically what direction they're headed. It'll be interesting to see whether he puts any red lines on the table. Of course, that has to be taken with a grain of salt. The Iranian leadership, including the Supreme Leader, made quite militant and inflammatory statements in recent weeks, you know, kind of saying we can't be in control of, uh, even though they denied a direct responsibility on October 7th. And interestingly, so did the Israelis and Americans indicate their belief that the Iranians were not directly responsible, even though, of course, we know Iran arms and trains and provides a sense of financial assistance to Hamas. It's interesting that all the major parties don't want to showcase a direct Iranian role in the specific attack, which does suggest, you know, all parties are not interested in escalating. But the Iranians have been making very inflammatory statements that really narrow the space for deniability, which they have often banked on in the past. So we do have to take these statements with a grain of salt because the Iranians already said, well, if it's a ground invasion, then who knows what may happen. So that's the other marker to look for. We'll see if Nasrallah puts other markers, you know, down. So far, there is the beginning of of this ground invasion or incursion. The Israelis aren't using the word invasion. And we are not yet seeing an immediate response from the Iranians or from Hezbollah. So those are going to be issues to watch for. And of course, then the unpredictability, which is, I think, the most worrying. And finally, I think we'll have to look within the Israeli political system itself, who has the upper hand in decision making. And one of my concerns is if the war in Gaza goes very badly for the Israelis with very high casualties, it could go two ways. It could be they have to double down and try to compensate for their losses, or it could be that they will turn their sights on the northern front because there's a lot less political division about Iran when it comes to the Israeli domestic system, a lot more agreement that Iran is kind of the source of the problem. And as risky as that will be, given Hezbollah capabilities, there could be an Israeli decision 
to shift attention there to distract from any failings or potential failings that they're encountering within Gaza. You could also see a a scenario where the Israelis are doing well by their own terms in terms of degrading Hamas military capabilities and decide, okay, now's the time to go further because we absolutely have to restore this shattered deterrence and this sense of in the region that we're not the mighty military force everyone thought we are. And therefore, let's go for broke and show everyone, you know, we're going to get critiqued no matter what. So let's show everyone we mean business and we are not returning to the status quo anywhere in the region, not just when it comes to Gaza. So I think Israeli political dynamics are also something to watch and are unpredictable these days. And as we've seen over the past year, have turned in a much more extreme ideological and dangerous direction. And lastly, we haven't mentioned this yet, but what role do you see being played by Jordan and Egypt in either helping to you know, maintain that logic of restraint or, on the other hand, be a player in which things might escalate? Well, I think Egypt and Jordan and, and the wider neighborhood, and there's, you know, hard to find good news in this very miserable story, but the good news is the neighborhood does not want escalation. They are pushing for ceasefire. They're pushing for calming of tensions. And Egypt and Jordan have particular concerns when it comes to refugees. And they have their own socioeconomic pressures in their countries. The last thing they need is the war spilling out into their countries. So they are most definitely not going to be triggers. But what could be a a warring trigger in terms of the way some of the Iranian-aligned groups or Iran itself could react is if some of these reports play out. The U.S. certainly is not supporting this, but there does seem to be reports that some Israelis have plans of the day after in Gaza. The plan is to kind of push the Gazans into Egypt and possibly, you know, into Jordan. And there's fears that, you know, there'll be attempts to push West Bank Palestinians into Jordan and Gazans into Egypt. And so this is kind of evoking Nakba or, you know, the trauma of 1948 when there was massive expulsion of Palestinians from their land and from their homes. And so if something drastic like that happened, where there was a major spilling over an exodus of Palestinians out of Gaza, and you're already seeing a trickling of this happening in the West Bank, that could increase pressure on the neighborhood and including the Iranian-aligned actors to step up the escalation ladder against Israel in response. So it, it is a worrying development, but all in all, I think the neighborhood can play a very important force in trying to find some diplomatic way out of this and a way to restore calm at some point. Dalia Dasake, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. This was worrisome. (laughs) Sorry about that. I'd like to have better news. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.